you've listened to the reading and uh, from Matthew 25 and uh, also from Daniel 7. So let's pray and then let's consider God's word together. Uh, loving Heavenly Father, again we say thank you for uh, the medium of video that uh, enables us to, to preach this way. But we pray that as we come together around your word today that you would speak to us, uh, that you would uh, impress on our hearts true things. Um, help us to, to wrestle honestly with uh, the difficult parts of this passage. Uh, and help us, we ask, to, uh, to face up to the, to the wonder of the cross and, and the beauty of the fact that you sent your son, the Lord Jesus, to save us from sins that would have taken us to an eternal separation from you. So we thank you, Lord God, and we pray that you would uh, help us to, um, to understand your word, to, to believe it and obey it. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, uh, we're coming to the end. This is the last of a series that we've been looking at uh, Jesus' last um, teaching uh, with the disciples where they asked him as he sat on the Mount of Olives back in chapter 24 of Matthew. Um, the disciples had two questions. Tennis, tell us when these things will be. He just prophesied that uh, the temple would be destroyed. They wanted to know when these things would happen. And they went on and said, what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? So some scholars speak of this as being the Mount Olives discourse. Um, Matthew organised his gospel around four big blocks of teaching that Jesus did. So he has a particular focus on Jesus' teaching. All the other uh, gospel writers do as well, but Matthew organises his gospel. He structures it around these four big blocks of teaching. Um, And this is the last of them, which gives it a sort of an extra special weight. So if Matthew's presented Jesus as the great teacher... Uh, his last words should really uh, carry great weight. And and so this is a very serious passage that we're looking at. And so we've seen over the last several weeks that um, in a world where there's constant speculation about when Jesus might return, Jesus actually gives us a very clear answer to the question, when will these things be? And the answer is no one knows. Uh, The disciples want to know what will be the sign of the coming of the end of the age, and there will be no sign. And so the imperative, what Jesus impresses on his disciples then and now, is that we must be patient, we must be alert, and we must be ready. We need to know the voice of our teacher so well that we won't be misled by those who come along and teach falsehood. But he tells a number of stories to illustrate that. And this passage that we've had today, this is not a parable. There are some illustrative elements in it, but it's not a parable. It's just a plain statement of things. But the, uh, the previous story uh, about the giving of the talents, which we looked at last week, uh, gives us uh, information on how we need to live while we wait for Jesus, and that's live faithfully with the abilities and the opportunities he has trusted to us. Um, and so this story today, the, the, this uh, teaching from Jesus today, uh, is, I suppose, an illustration of the outcome of waiting faithfully for Jesus with an appropriate use of the talents he's he's trusted to us. And so I've entitled today's talk, Waiting for Jesus by Living Compassionately. And so we're looking at Matthew 25, 31 to 46, and I hope you've got it open there. Now, the disciples have said, what will be the sign of your coming? And he never tells them. He doesn't actually answer that. He says there won't be a sign. But now he describes not the signs of his coming, but what will take place when he comes. So this is a key part of Christian teaching. Jesus came down from heaven. He ministered on earth. He died. He was buried. Uh, He was raised from the dead and he ascended back to heaven where 
the New Testament writers tell us he's seated at God's right hand and he's reigning over the universe. But one day he's going to return and he's promised that. And so the New Testament is written in anticipation of the fact that Jesus is coming back. Well, what happens when he comes back? This is Jesus' version of that. And so verses 31 to 33 of Matthew 25, we could say that the Son of Man is separating sheep from goats. So look at the words there, starting at verse 31. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne and before him will be gathered all the nations. Now Jesus, by taking on the title Son of Man, that was his favourite way of describing himself, this is a clear reference back to Daniel chapter 7. Now Daniel 7 is a courtroom scene where we have one called the Ancient of Days who's seated on a throne uh, and he's given a, a wonderful description. Clearly the Ancient of Days is God. Uh, but then as Daniel sees this vision unfold in verses 13 to 14 of Daniel 7, uh, we record it's recorded there, I saw in the night visions and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man, and he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all people's nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting kingdom, but it'll never pass away. Now, son of man in that context means a human. But Daniel sees a human coming with clouds and clouds in the Bible are always a symbol of divinity or of divine activity. So this is a human who comes to God with the clouds, with the full glory of divinity, and he receives a kingdom which will never pass away, a dominion, authority. Clearly, this is a, a human who is God. He was seeing a, a prefiguring of the Lord Jesus. But those things are taken on now by Jesus as he describes his return to earth as the world's king and as the world's judge. And so whereas Yahweh is the one who's represented in the Old Testament as being the judge, because Jesus is, as the, son, the divine son of man, is given authority and given rule over the whole world. He's now king of the world and the righteous judge of the world. Now before him are gathered all nations. This is the judgment of the entire world. Everyone that's ever lived will meet God and, and will be judged by God's son, the Lord Jesus. And so all the nations are gathered there. Now this is fair. This is a fair arrangement if you... No, John chapter 1 verse 3, we're told there as John introduces his gospel that all things were made through Jesus and without him nothing was made that was, was made. So Jesus is coming to what is his own and he's rendering his assessment of what people have done with the gift of life that's been trusted to them. Now this judgment is represented as a separation. It's an irrevocable separation. It's an unalterable separation of sheep and goats. Now, I never really understood how you could separate sheep from why that was such a big deal because I always thought it was pretty obvious what a sheep and a goat looked like. But I visited some missionaries in Africa a few years ago and it's quite common practice um, and it certainly was in the Middle East of Jesus' day that a, a farmer or a herder would, would have sheep and goats mingled together and they're actually very similar in appearance. They look quite, to, to my untrained eye, I couldn't tell the difference between a sheep and a goat. Now that's of some interest to us as the passage unfolds. But at the, the judgment when Jesus returns as the divine son of man with authority, he is going to be faced with the world and all of its peoples 
and there will be a day of division and separation. And the sheep will go one way and the goats will go another way. So verses 34 to 40, we find that the sheep are rewarded. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. So the son of man has received a kingdom and now he says, I'm going to share that kingdom with the sheep, the people that have been separated to his right side. Now notice there he says to them, come, he says, you've been blessed by my father and he says, inherit the kingdom that's been prepared for you. They're inheriting a kingdom which God has always had in mind for the people that honour his son. Now Jesus reminds us of his fatherly care here, of God's fatherly care. Um, he's known and prepared this inheritance. This is something too good to miss out on. It's something that no eye has seen or ear heard. But it's something that has been prepared since before time began. God has always had in mind to save people by his son and for his son, for the glory of his son. And so that can fill us now with reassurance and confidence and hope. These matters are cert- they're firmly settled because God's got them all in hand. This is something that he's had in mind to do since before time. And so this blessed inheritance, this blessed inheritance is, is received on the basis of how the sheep have treated who? The king's brothers. So have a look there in verse 40. Uh, well, we'll go back a bit. Um, Jesus says, come and receive it. And for, why are they receiving it? Well, he says, I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. So six wonderful, generous, compassionate activities have characterised the lives of those people that now Jesus invites to join him in this kingdom that's been prepared since the foundation of the world. Now, the righteous seem somewhat surprised about that. They say, well, when did we see you hungry and feed you and thirsty and so on and, and, and helped you out? When, when did we ever administer compassion to you? And Jesus says in verse 40, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. Now, that word brothers is really important here. This is not general compassion, kindness, being nice to people. This is compassion which is targeted at the family of faith, the brothers of the king, Jesus' brothers. Now, we already know who his brothers are uh, because back in Matthew chapter 12, verses 46 to 50, there was a time when Jesus' earthly family, his mother and his brothers, were gathered and people came into him in the house where he was teaching and they said, your mother and your brother are outside. They want to see you. But he replied to the man in Matthew twelve forty eight, who is my mother and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, here are my mother, here are my brothers. To be a brother of Jesus means to be one of his people. Uh, what a privilege. The son of the king, the one who is really the king, he calls us his brothers. We're his family. And this is a family bond which is stronger than flesh and blood ties. His mother and his brothers had to believe in him if they were to be included in his eternal family, just the same as we do. But now Jesus says the reward of this eternal inheritance is for the sheep 
who have looked after his brothers. Because by looking after his brothers, they're looking after him. Now, there's some surprise there. The, the sheep said, oh, we didn't know we'd done that. In other words, they were just getting on with the business of using their talents in the service of the family of God. That's what it means to wait for Jesus. Now, this is not salvation by works. We won't be saved because we've been kind. These are the things that happen as the fruit of our salvation. Uh, These are the sorts of things that happen when the Holy Spirit indwells us and changes our priorities, changes our heart and makes us want to work out our faith in good deeds. And so this is an illustration of what James talks about in James chapter 2. So faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. So in other words, if you believe in Jesus, if you've trusted yourself to him, if you've been forgiven by him and claimed that his blood shed on the cross has paid the price for your sins, if you've been indwelt by his Holy Spirit, the Spirit will change you to become more and more like Jesus, where it becomes your chief joy to do the things that please Jesus. Now Jesus has talked about how simple this can be in Matthew chapter 10. Matthew 10 verse 42, he says, whoever gives one of these little ones, which is another way of saying his brothers, whoever gives one of these little ones even a cup of cold water because he is a disciple, truly I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. So the king is prepared to call us brothers. And the, the message of this is pretty obvious to be unconcerned for the practical needs of the king's family is sacrilege. Now John Calvin, the great French reformer and wonderful Bible scholar and commentator, he said this, Christ is either neglected or honoured in the person who needs our assistance. So even a deed as simple as giving someone a thirsty person a drink on a, on a hot day is an act which is a kind act which is actually rendered to the Lord Jesus himself. We need to look after each other. Uh, Jesus says, they'll know you are my people by your love. Um, And and so love needs to be the characteristic quality of the Christian family, the Christian community. In a loveless world, Christians need to love each other. And by doing that, by looking after each other with love, concern and compassion, we're actually demonstrating that to Jesus. It's not the basis on which, which we'll be saved. It's the evidence that we've been saved and that we need to keep on doing it until Jesus comes. But then verses 41 to 46, there's the alternative. Those sent to his left, the goats. The goats are ruined. Now, these are really sobering words and we need to weigh them very carefully and not diminish them at all. He'll say to those on his left, depart from me, you cursed into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Why? For I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty and you gave me no drink. It's a checklist of all the same qualities that the sheep have been doing, but these goats have not. They've shown no concern for the brothers of the king. Now they're surprised as well. They say in verse 44, they also will answer saying, Lord, when do we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? Then he'll answer them, truly I say to you, as you did not do it to the one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. 
So both the sheep and the goats are surprised. The sheep just thought, well, we're just getting on with the business. We didn't know we were doing it for Jesus, to Jesus. But the, the goats, so clearly both thought that they were members of the family. But there were members of the family who neglected their duty, who did not put flesh on the bones of their faith, whatever it was they believed. And their faith didn't save them. And so the goats are cursed. They're banished from the king's presence. They're sent to a future of eternal fire. The sheep receive a kingdom which has been prepared for them. The goats receive a fate which was prepared for the devil and the angel, his angels, clearly a place that humans shouldn't be. But it depends on choices that have been made. So Anthony Hockema wrote a book called The Bible in the Future and this is how he sums these words up. He says, In the light of the portrayal of the last judgment, the best way to be prepared for Christ's second coming is to be continually showing love to those who are Christ's brothers. Now it starts for us right here in Mafra Community Church to be showing love for those who identify with the Lord Jesus right here and now. You could even have a look around. Uh, and see those people that Jesus is calling you to love and to act compassionately towards. And that is a big part of, of the life that's to be lived, living out what talents he's trusted you with until he returns. But it's inescapable. We need to think a bit here about the fate, the destination of those who Jesus pronounces cursed, and who are cast into the eternal fire which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. Verse 46 says that this is an eternal punishment. Uh, just as the experience of those who were blessed by Jesus is eternal reward, eternal life, the punishment that is received by these who have neglected Jesus is eternal punishment. And so I'd like to think for a moment about the, the terrifying reality of this final judgment. Uh, eternal means of unending duration, whether for good or for ill. Uh, eternal life lasts forever. Eternal punishment lasts forever. And that punishment is painful retribution. It's payback for failing to honour Jesus Christ as King and Lord. We could say it's an eternity in hell. Now, this is an unpopular doctrine. This is something that uh, doesn't get spoken about very often. You'll hear occasionally people say, oh, you don't still believe that stuff, as though it should have been consigned to the dustbin of history back in the medieval era. C.S. Lewis, who I quote frequently because I find him so helpful, he has, has this to say. There is no doctrine which I would more willingly remove from Christianity than this, if it lay in my power. Well, lots of people have rejected it. So Rob Bell became a very famous, supposedly Christian author some years ago. He wrote a book called Love Wins in 2011, which sold in millions and was widely read and quite influential. And in that book, he said this, it's been clearly communicated to many that this belief in hell as eternal conscious torment is a central truth of the Christian faith and to reject it is in essence to reject Jesus. This, Bell says, is misguided and toxic 
and ultimately subverts the contagious spread of Jesus' message of love, peace, forgiveness and joy that our world desperately needs to hear. Well, yes, Jesus does have a message of love, peace, forgiveness and joy and our world desperately needs to hear it. But Jesus also said that there were consequences for rejecting him. Now, I caught up with an old friend um, a couple of years ago. I hadn't seen him for a while and we were talking about this and that. And he, uh, he said to me that um, there were aspects of his faith that he's reviewed and there are things that he once believed that he now no longer believes. And the one example he gave is he said, I don't believe any longer in eternal punishment. Now, we met at the football and I didn't really have a chance to press, on, you know, to press him on this because I would have liked to. Uh, I would have said, well, which, which passage of the Bible have you come to a new understanding of that means that you now understand that what you once believed was, was wrong? Has this come as a result of a deeper insight into Scripture? Is that still your authority or is there something in your reasoning that's taken you away from it? But Rob Bell thinks that the doctrine of eternal punishment is one that uh, is damaging, toxic, he says. Well, we need to go back to C.S. Lewis because he says he would prefer, he would, he would quite willingly do without it. But to continue the sentence, he says this, the doctrine of eternal punishment has the full support of scripture and especially of our Lord's own words. It's always been held by Christendom and it has the support of reason. And this is the reason he gives. If a game is played, it must be possible to lose it. So God's wrath, God's anger at human sin and the fact that there will be a coming judgment which Jesus has described in Matthew 25 at the end of all things, when they're discussed in scripture, they're spoken of without embarrassment. They're spoken of as being plain, inescapable truth. And so if we're concerned about this, if we're embarrassed about this doctrine, if we think that we've moved too far to believe something like this because it sounds cruel and perhaps we think it sounds as though it's out of character of God to do something like this, my question would be, do we understand these things better than the prophets? Because they spoke of them. Do we understand these things better than the apostles? Because they spoke of them. Do we understand these things better than Jesus? Because we have his word here. And there's no twisting what those words mean. They are very plain. But another question might be, are our moral standards higher than God's? Now, you'll find people in the world who are quite happy to say, yes, they are. But how could they be? And how can we as obedient Christians ever make that kind of claim, knowing what we know about God and knowing what we know about ourselves? Now, if you were to look through just the Gospel of of Matthew, you'd see that Jesus makes frequent references to an eternity of misery and punishment separate from God. He does it often. Just to give two examples, Matthew 10 verse 28, uh, Jesus is trying to put uh, the persecution of people in, in, of his people in, in perspective. He says, do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul, rather fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Jesus believed in hell. But in chapter 25, verse 30, we looked at this last week, the worthless servant who didn't do anything with the talent he'd been trusted with, uh, the, the end of that story found that he was cast into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. 
So again, that phrase weeping and gnashing of teeth turns up over and over again in Matthew's Gospel. It's a description of misery, of, uh, of deep ongoing grief mingled with resentment. Uh, there is no second chance after death. Uh, there is no purgatory. There is no limbo. The decisions we make on earth, God takes them very seriously. And these people who have decided to live without God through his son, the Lord Jesus, will find it in hell where there are no friends. So don't even think for a moment, well, at least I'll have my mates with me. No, you won't, because everything good ends in this world for those people. I heard it once said that uh, for people who find themselves in God's eternal kingdom, the only hell they'll have experienced will have been on earth. But for people who find themselves in, with the eternal experience of hell, they'll find that the only heaven they've experienced was here on earth. Uh, we're given our opportunity in the life that we have and, and, and people enjoy the good things of God's creation, which include friendship. But all of those things will be finished by the time a person is separated from God where there is nothing good. Just an isolated experience forever of weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now these are plain speaking statements on final judgment and they form the conclusion to Matthew's presentation of Jesus' teaching so they're significant. And we need to weigh them very carefully and, and not diminish them or turn aside from them. But I just want to finish by considering for a moment is eternal punishment consistent with the God of love because it's a, 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 something you'll hear reasonably often if you listen hard enough for it. But I want to contend that everybody actually believes in judgment. Um, you do not have to teach children when you give them something that they want and then someone else comes along and that, they, they, they quickly protect that which is theirs, right? Uh, they'll be on the lookout for if they get the smaller slice of cake when, when cake's administered at the party. But you don't need to teach kids to say, it's not fair. That seems to come out of nowhere. You'll never need uh, to teach them that. But you'll hear about people who talk about karma. I had a car accident earlier this year uh, where I bumped into a car in the supermarket shopping park, uh, a car park, and, um, well, I damaged her car and I damaged my car. So I went to the shopping centre management and I left my name and number and the woman rang me. And she thanked me and thanked me and told me that because I'd been so honest, I would be rewarded. She said, I believe in karma. Um, people believe in judgment. Where, you know, she, you know, I think she was probably thinking bad thoughts about me because she'd seen the damage but hadn't noticed the note that I'd stuck under the, the wiper. So that probably changed her thinking. But she was probably thinking I was going to get bad karma until she found the note. Uh, but you go to the football and there's two sides playing according to the same rules. And, and uh, how often do we yell out, open your eyes, umpire? It seems so obvious to us that our team's been cheated and yet the umpire couldn't see it. We all believe in judgment somewhere. I had a friend, uh, I was talking to him, that uh, I talked with him, and he was telling me about his former employer. He hadn't always been a teacher and he worked for a big company with a well-known boss. And he said he deserves to go to hell. So I thought to myself, hell's always for other people. There's always some people we can think of who deserve it, but just not us. But when paedophiles are convicted, I've seen this on the TV, they, they're taken out of the court and they're taken to the, the van that's taking them to prison. And quite often you'll find a crowd outside thumping on the side of the van. 
uh, and you will hear people say, I hope you rot in hell. So people do believe in judgment. Uh, I think I've told you before about a man that I met and spent a fair bit of time with whose son had been murdered at random. And uh, that man, uh, the, 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 the killer was caught, he was tried and sentenced. But the father of the murdered boy was not satisfied that justice had been done and he said he was going to do everything he could to have that man executed in prison. Uh, and it just it, it struck me that, that the way we deal with things now, it doesn't perfectly satisfy people's sense of justice. Uh, it, it, the, 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 the sentence there did not reflect, according to this, this father, the gravity of the crime. So everyone believes in judgment to an extent. Uh, just not for them, I would say. But to go on thinking about his eternal punishment consistent with the God of love, we could turn the question around and ask, is unconditional forgiveness consistent with the God of love? Does God just have to say, everything's okay? Is that loving? Well, J.I. Packer, in his wonderful book, uh, Knowing God, uh, J.I. Packer says this, would a God who did not react adversely to evil in the world be morally perfect? Now think about this, back in 2014 on the, um, the 4th of April, uh, 276 Nigerian schoolgirls were kidnapped by members of the Boko Haram Islamic terrorist organisation. They kidnapped these 276 Nigerian schoolgirls aged between 16 and 18. They were taken away um, to become wives for their captors. Some of them died, some of them have escaped, some of them have never come back. Now imagine if the parents of one of those Nigerian schoolgirls found themselves in God's eternal kingdom next to one of the kidnappers who had never repented, who had never confessed that what he did was a manifest evil. As a parent myself, I can't imagine many worse things to happen than to have my daughters kidnapped, and yet it happened. Is it okay for those people to have the slate wiped clean? Does God just have to say, yeah, no problem? Has God no right to an opinion on the moral state of his world? Now remember that the eternal kingdom that Jesus offers to the people who have looked after his people, his brothers, his eternal kingdom is his kingdom, it's where he will live and he invites others to share the privileges that have been prepared for them since the beginning of, before the beginning of the world. Now think about this. If it's his kingdom, does he have a right to say who is entitled to live there? Who do you invite to your parties? Who do you invite to share a meal with you? Is it your practice to invite people that have ignored you, slighted you, spoken evilly of you? who have paid you no attention at all or perhaps even hated you? Is it your practice to invite them? I doubt it. So why would anyone expect God to apply a different standard to where he lives than we humans apply to where we live? Is eternal punishment consistent with the God of love? Well, it's consistent with the way we do a lot of things as well. Jesus affirmed the, the terrible reality of eternal punishment in hell. He didn't blush as he said it, he didn't blink. It was a perfectly just outcome 
in consideration of the choices that people make. And so true disciples will never deny something that their master taught so clearly. But my last point in relation to this is, if there is a hell, or if there is no hell, then what did Jesus die to save us from? We talk about him him as being our saviour. What did he die to save us from? When you go to the beach and see someone sitting on a high chair with a red and yellow striped cap on, they're not there handing out chocolates. They're there for the very real prospect that a person might need their assistance in taking them out of dangerous water. They're lifesavers. They'd be unnecessary if the risk wasn't great. If hell was not a reality, what did Jesus die to save us from? And was it just of God to allow his his son to die so horrifically if he was just going to forgive people anyway? But judgment and hell should never be spoken of flippantly. They're serious things. It's something that should give us no pleasure to speak of these things at all. Um, God takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked, rather that they should repent. And it's not our place to pronounce judgment on others, as my friend did in the school staff room, uh, because no one knows. It may be that we just apply our judgment because we don't like someone, but we don't know the whole picture. Jesus says, judge not or you'll be judged in Matthew chapter 7. It's not our place to pronounce judgment on the eternal consequences of of people. Um, That's for God alone. But C.S. Lewis, I want to finish with a couple of quotes from him. Uh, In answering the question, is, is hell fair? Is it reasonable? He asks this question. In the long run, the answer to all those who object to the doctrine of hell is itself a question. What are you asking God to do? To wipe out all past sins and at all costs to give them a fresh start, smoothing every difficulty and offering every miraculous help? But he has done so on Calvary. To forgive them, they will not be forgiven. To leave them alone. Alas, I'm afraid that's what he does. In his book, The Great Divorce, Lewis says this, there are only two kinds of people in the end, those who say to God, thy will be done, and those to whom God says in the end, thy will be done. All that are in hell choose it. No soul that seriously desires joy will ever miss it. Those who seek find, to those who knock, the door will be opened. The doctrine of hell, the way Jesus taught it, is not illegitimate scare tactics. It's plain statement of reality that our decisions in life about Jesus have eternal consequences, eternally fair consequences. Eternity is real and only two destinies await. So the future can't be faced casually or indifferently. God takes our sin so seriously that he sent his son to pay for it. Now the challenge for us who believe in this is what difference will that make to our evangelism? Do we care enough about people to warn them? But if God takes our sin so seriously that he sent his son to pay for it, we do well to think hard about the question posed in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 3. How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? Let's pray.
Heavenly Father, uh, there's a lot about the doctrine of hell that should terrify us because we acknowledge again that we're sinful people and we, we deserve your wrath. And yet in your mercy and your grace and your great kindness, you sent your son, the Lord Jesus, at just the right time to be our sin bearer, to be the one who paid the price with his blood for those sins that would have taken us to hell. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you for his grace, for his mercy. We thank you for the peace that we can have in knowing that our sins have been paid for. We thank you for the hope that we are filled with contemplating uh, an eternal kingdom which has been prepared for Jesus' brothers and sisters from before the foundation of the world. Uh, We again acknowledge that these are privileges we don't deserve. They're all uh, from your generous grace. But we pray that you would help us to live in the light of these things and to seek to live our lives to, uh, to show our love for Jesus by the way that we treat the ones he calls in this reading his brothers. Please help us not to grow slack in doing things and may our church grow as a, as a community of faith and hope and love. But Father, help us too to be concerned for our friends and for our family, for others who don't yet know this saving grace. Um, Help us not to shy away from the difficult things that uh, we find taught so clearly in the Bible, but help us uh, to hold out the hope of eternal life uh, generously and and with great compassion for others as well. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.